0: Gresham College Presents, Neutrinos, Ghost Particles of the Universe, by Frank Close, OBE, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. Well, today I want to tell you about the mysterious neutrino, and if we can start with the first slide, Jeff, so we can remind ourselves. This is the cartoon of what matter is made of. Matter, we, everything, are made of atoms. And atoms aren't the smallest things, even though they're pretty small. Uh, if you were here last time, I think I said that the diameter of a single human hair, about up to a million atoms, could fit into it. So they're very small, but not so small that you can't imagine them. But they are made of even smaller pieces inside. And the atoms of every element consist of electrons that are whirling around on the periphery. And then the very centre of the atomic nucleus, where the protons and neutrons live, what we know is that the protons and neutrons aren't the ultimate seeds of everything, they themselves are made of smaller pieces called quarks. So the start of today's story is that everything that we know is made of quarks and electrons. If you leave that on there a moment, this is the makeup of matter. OK, you can kill the slide, thank you. Um, The fact that there are protons and neutrons, which are two things inside the atomic nucleus, is because there are two different types of quarks, which we call the up quark and the down quark. Not very imaginative in names, but there you are. So ultimately, you, me, everything is made of up and down quarks, which are the seeds of the atomic nucleus, and then electrons whirling around on the outside. But in addition, there's the neutrino, And where does this fit in? What's it needed for? What is it? Who is it? Well, let me just say a couple of things about this to give a taster for mysteries that we'll meet in the later talks. There are two types of quark, up and down, and there are two types of electron. The electron is a negatively charged, it's the lightest thing that we know apart from, from light itself. It's negatively charged, the carrier of electricity. The neutrino is like the electron, but with the charge taken away. It's neutral. It's got no charge. That's why it's called neutr. And eno is little in Italian. So, neutrino has got no electric charge. It may have no mass at all. Though, what I'm going to tell you at the end of the talk is that last week, I think for the first time, we're now getting at last information that the neutrino does have a mass and that means that by total chance today's talk is very timely. But The electron and the neutrino are two things that live in one part of our world of particles and the up and down parts are two things that live in another part of our world of particles, two and two, interesting thing, that's another story. So the neutrino, what is it needed for? Well, I call it the ghostly neutrino. What you will often read or hear about the neutrino is that uh, it will Travel from one end of the universe to the other without bumping into anything. It can travel through light years of lead, we are told, without bumping into anything. Um, It's impossible. I put it in quotation marks because if it was completely impossible, how on earth is it that we would ever know that it was there? Which I will come to in a minute. It's the smallest of the particles. It's the first fossil in the universe. By that I mean that at the Big Bang, neutrinos were probably the very first thing that came pouring out and neutrinos that we manage to detect in outer space coming here to Earth are, in a sense, messengers from the Big Bang. That's when most of them were created. Um, Something about the neutrino will tell us how the universe is expanding and uh, it may determine the destiny of the universe, is what I will tell you at the very end of the talk. So, what has been exciting the last few years is that with neutrinos, the fact that we are now able actually to capture occasional neutrinos we can use them to look inside stars, because stars produce neutrinos, our Sun is producing neutrinos. And certainly so, you and me, so let me just tell you some statistics about neutrinos. So, every second, the Sun is, the fusion processes at the center of the Sun are turning the hydrogen in the Sun into to helium, but they are producing neutrinos, and The the astrophysicists understand the sun so so well that they can tell us how many neutrinos are being produced each second. It is two with 38 zeros after it. I mean, this amazes me. I mean, 38 zeros is one thing, but it's two and not three or one. But they, okay, that's critical. Now, of course, they pour out into space in all directions. And we here are 150 million kilometers away. And we're only a very little uh, bit of the whole of space. So by the time they've traveled 150 million kilometers, the number that actually managed to come through this room, um, or to hit, well to hit you or me, is about 400 billion every second. Now I've estimated that number by assuming that we are roughly about one square meter of surface area, about two meters high and half a meter wide and so forth. So this says that Each second that I'm speaking, 400 billion neutrinos from the sun have passed through you and you, and you, and me, and everybody. Um, And they've hit Homer Simpson. The Earth itself, because of the radioactivity of rocks in the Earth, about 50 billion neutrinos every second are coming up from the Earth and passing through us. So it's perhaps just as well that they hardly interact with anything that um, we're totally unaware of the fact that this is happening all the time. Now, what you might not be so aware of is, uh, it's not because Homer Simpson lives in a radioactive... Uh, ...are radioactive. Um, potassium-40 is very common in uh, bones and teeth and so on and so forth. It is radioactive and we, each of us, is emitting about 400 neutrinos every second radioactivity in our own bodies. So at the bottom of this I've just done a little sum which is that the hour that we're going to meet here this lunchtime each of us is emitting 400 neutrinos every second of that hour the size of this audience it means that from this room we will have emitted about a hundred million neutrinos out into space and those neutrinos will by and large not interact with anything ever. I mean, one or two may bump into something, but the vast majority of those will fly out into the universe and continue to the far reaches of the universe forever. Well, that's the nearest we will ever get to immortality. So, um, the Sun produces neutrinos. Here we are on the Earth. Not just the Sun, but uh, supernova. when. Certain stars uh, burn run out of their fuel and collapse in this violent explosion called a supernova. They emit a flash of light, which is stronger than the single They also emit neutrinos. The calculations of the astrophysicists are that whereas the sun is emitting two with 38 zeros after it, that's pretty small beer because a supernova explosion has something with 42 zeros after it. In other words, is that about 10,000 times more? Uh, in that instant flash. And 200,000 years ago, um, a supernova happened in the large Magellanic Cloud. That's a little satellite galaxy of our own, which is not visible up here in the Northern Hemisphere, because it's always hidden on the other side of the Earth. But if you go to the Southern Hemisphere, it's a beautiful sight, because you're actually looking right through our galaxy. You see this beautiful, uh, what we call the Milky Way. You can see why it's called the Milky Way in the Southern Heavens. And you will see just off to the side, you see it in the corner of your eye, you will see this little cloud which is a small satellite galaxy of our own and it's called the the Magellanic Cloud, it was Magellan who first saw it. It was called a cloud because it sort of looks like a cloud and there's two of them, one's large and one's small. Hence the names. But there was a star 200,000 years ago that uh, exploded in the large Magellanic Cloud. It emitted light, it emitted neutrinos. And this galaxy is about 200,000 light years from here. So it spent those 200,000 years the light and the neutrinos traveling across space, all the way across space. Some of them are heading towards us. And you can imagine what was going on here 200,000 years ago. We are in sort of Stone Age man, or even before that time. These neutrinos are traveling across space. Um, somewhere about 3,000 years ago, humans arrive and discover science, and these neutrinos are still traveling across space. And 100 years ago, we discovered the idea of the atom, and these neutrinos are still traveling across space, heading in our way. Around 1930, Pauli, who we'll meet in a minute, says, I think there might be a thing called a neutrino, in Italian he said it, and in 1956, two Americans discovered the neutrino, and by the 1970s and 80s, we were beginning to be able to detect neutrinos quite easily, and about 15 years ago, the beginnings of neutrino astronomy began, at which point, six or seven of these neutrinos from the large Magellanic cloud passed through our cornflakes one morning. And it's amazing, you know, that uh, they arrived here just five or six years after we had discovered all these things, even though the original explosion was two hundred thousand years ago. And so uh, the detector, the detection of a couple of dozen of neutrinos in different laboratories from this large Magellanic cloud is the first and to this moment the only time that we have knowingly detected neutrinos from anything other than uh, reactors, experiments, radioactivity on Earth, the Sun, and in this case, a supernova. And the future is going to be neutrino astronomy. People are now, already have built big uh, apparatus for detecting neutrinos, which I'm going to tell you about. And one of the exciting things of that will be the beginnings of neutrino astronomy looking into the center of the Sun into the center of a supernova and seeing what's really going on there. Now, the Sun is interesting because the basic fusion process takes place deep in its center and uh, the light that we receive from the Sun comes from the outside. The fusion process in the middle emits neutrinos which pass straight out through the sun and get here in eight minutes. The the light that's emitted from here gets bounced around. It bounces around inside the hot sun. It takes a hundred thousand years for it to work its way to the surface and then it takes eight minutes to get here. So the light that we are receiving today originated over a hundred thousand years ago in, in the center. Neutrinos that we're able to detect were emitted eight minutes ago in the center. And one of the surprising things that has been discovered is that too few neutrinos seem to get here. And this created two big questions. Does it mean that, in fact, the sun isn't shining anymore? That the light that we're currently seeing um, from the edge, that the center of the sun has already used up its reserves and it's stopped. And the light that's coming from the edge here set off 100,000 years ago while the sun was still working and the shortfall of neutrinos is telling us that the sun has actually stopped in the middle, in which case there's a real energy crisis going to come, or is it something about the neutrinos? And you'll be happy to learn, I hope, that indeed it is. We have believed for a long time something about the neutrinos, and that one of the results of this experiment that I'm going to tell you about from last week, confirms that. So there's one piece of good news, hopefully, from today's talk, is that the idea that the sun is going to stop tomorrow is actually not the case next week maybe, but another one. Okay, so where did the neutrino come from? Well, the beginnings of modern science were the discovery of radioactivity by Becquerel in 1896 and what he discovered was that one element can turn into another. Um, In particular, a neutron in the nucleus of one element can undergo what we call beta decay. Beta decay involves its turning into a proton which means its zero charge has moved up to one positive and the conservation of charge says well a negative charge had better appear and that's indeed what is carried off by an electron which was called the beta particle hence beta radioactivity so what beta radioactivity was for the first half of the last century uh, for the first third of the last century was neutrons turning into protons and an electron whizzing off but you look at this and you think It's like one hand clapping. You feel, well, just a minute, shouldn't there be something coming off the other side to sort of balance the momentum? And indeed, that's correct. Um, The careful measurements that were made of beta radioactivity found that apparently energy and momentum didn't balance. And this created a a huge problem. And it was in 1930 that Pauli made the suggestion that indeed there was an invisible, and it had to be electrically neutral because the total charge balancing, it was zero to begin with, so there had to be zero to end with, minus one and plus one had already given you the zero, so this extra thing, which we call the neutrino, had to be electrically neutral and almost invisible, because nobody had seen it. And Pauli suggested that this thing existed, and he was right, but the way he suggested it, it was in a letter, and if you've picked up the um, the handouts, this letter is printed in there, but anyway, I'll read it to you. He'd been invited to a meeting, a science meeting, about radioactivity in 1930 and he wrote as follows, Dear radioactive ladies and gentlemen, as the bearer of these lines to whom I graciously ask you to listen will explain in more detail how because of the the problems with the the beta decay, I have hit upon a desperate remedy to save the law of conservation of energy, namely the possibility that there could exist electrically neutral particles that I wish to call, now at this point, I will say neutrinos. Powley, if there are historians of science here, you should actually look at the real letter that he wrote. So I confess, I didn't realize this until I read it the other day. He says that I wish to call neutrons. And that would be a tremendous confusion if I use that language, because they're not neutrons. It also brings home the fact that neutrons haven't been discovered in 1930, but that's another story. Um, You might think, well, why was he so nervous about postulating a new particle? Because, I mean, don't these particle physicists invent particles all the time? To which the answer is, yes, we do, but this is 2001. The idea of inventing a new particle to solve this problem in 1930 was heresy. I mean, at, at that stage, electrons were known and protons were known, and that was it. I mean, even neutrons hadn't yet been discovered. So the idea of inventing a new particle to solve this little problem, was quite remarkable. The mass of the neutrinos should be of the same order of magnitude or less than the electron mass. Right. And the beta spectrum would then become understandable by the assumption that in beta decay the neutrino is emitted in addition to the electron, such that the sum of the energy is in the momentum balance. I agree that my remedy could seem incredible, because one should have seen these neutrinos very early, if they exist. But only the one who dares can win. Did he say that in 1930? (laughs) And the difficult situation, due to the continuous structure, is lighted by a remark of my honoured predecessor, Mr. Debye, who told me recently, do not worry, it's better not to worry about these things, like taxes. (laughs) From now on, every solution to the issue must be discussed. Thus, dear radioactive people, look and judge. Unfortunately, I cannot appear in Tubingen personally, since I am indispensable here in Zurich because of a ball on the night of 6th and 7th of December. Yours sincerely, W. Powley. Now, if anybody here knows what Powley was like, um, you cannot imagine Powley being a sort of party boy. And what I'm told by the historians is that this actually shows that Powley was extremely nervous about this suggestion. I mean, it was almost made on the fly. He didn't, at this stage, regard it seriously, and this was a diplomatic way of avoiding actually coming to the meeting and making a statement in a meeting which would be regarded as, as an official statement. This was sort of a backdoor way of doing it, but eventually he turned out to be correct. Uh, he thought about it some more, and I think by 1932 was convinced that he was right, and he made the uh, remark that this particle uh, will be essentially impossible to, disco- to, to, to discover. And he wagered a case of champagne that nobody would ever see the neutrino. Well in 1956 um, or the early 1950s the neutrino was indeed finally discovered and the way it was discovered was this, that the fact that individual neutrinos will pass from one end of the universe to the other is pretty well true, but if you've got enough of them there's the chance that one or two might bump into something. It's like the lottery. You know, the chance that you particularly, or I particularly, will win the lottery is zero. But the chance that somebody will win the lottery is pretty sure. But you don't know which one it's going to be. Same thing with neutrinos. A lot of neutrinos, maybe one or two. So all you need to do, all you need to do, is to find a source of neutrinos that's intense enough. Well, the Fred Rinas, an American scientist, who had been involved in the Manhattan Project, had the brilliant idea that when you explode atomic bombs, as one does, lots of neutrinos are produced. And he then had the idea that he would uh, have a detector. He had a, a shaft in the ground with a, a detector for, to see if neutrinos would hit, hanging in the shaft. The idea being that when the atomic bomb went off uh, above it, the shock wave, of course, would destroy everything, um, and the, the detector would suddenly fall from its perch. But it would detect the neutrinos, and although the wave would destroy everything around, this thing would fall down the shaft and land on a bed of feathers and things like that down the bottom and be safe. Um, but then they pointed out that there was an easier way of doing it, and that was to go to a nuclear reactor, which is what they did. And he went to the nuclear reactor at Savannah River in, in uh, South Carolina. And there, the nuclear processes are producing neutrinos, millions of them, I don't know what the number is. And so the idea is this, that you've got this reactor here producing the neutrinos, if Paul is right. And then some way away from the reactor, you have some material. And uh, occasionally, one of these neutrinos will bump into, say, a proton in this material and turn the proton back to a neutron, emitting actually a positively charged electron, a positron balance the charge. So the idea was this, you've got the reactor there apparently producing neutrinos, and if over here you've got some material which suddenly starts producing positrons out of it, maybe you've made H.G. Wells' invisible man reveal himself by bumping into the crowd. That was the idea, that's what they did, they discovered it. So that was the first part of an interesting story. The second amazing thing that happened was that it was discovered that neutrinos didn't like mirrors. Now those of you who were here the previous time, I was sort of showing how we are very used to the idea of mirror symmetry. Look in a mirror, you seem to have left and right interchanged. And to illustrate that, I got this little Harlequin character. And I said, of course, if you look at this Harlequin in a mirror, what you will see is that, which is fine. Anything that exists in one form, the mirror image will look different. But it could be that there are people wearing these suits as well as these suits. You couldn't tell whether you were looking at a mirror image of a Harlequin or a real Harlequin. However, if it was the case that for some reason the law said that people are not allowed to dress that way, you'd be immediately able to tell whether you were looking at a real person or a lawbreaker. So, that would be a case where the world behind the mirror was forbidden. And of course you might say, well, there aren't such things except there are such things, and that's where the neutrino comes in. When the... uh, When this beta decay happens, the electron, say, goes shooting off in one direction, and the neutrino goes shooting off in the other. Now, electrons and neutrinos, we now know, they sort of spin as they travel. Um, They could spin like a right-handed corkscrew, or like a left-handed corkscrew, one or the other. What they discovered was that they always looked like this. If I look at this in a mirror, okay. So, when the electron came off, because that's the one that I detect, it could be spinning that way, like a left-handed corkscrew, and its mirror image would show it going the other way, like a right-handed corkscrew. But what they discovered is that this one always happens and this one never does. This was called the violation of parity, or the violation of mirror symmetry. That you could distinguish the real world from the mirror world. This happens in the real world, this never does, it only happens in the mirror world. Don't ask me why, that's how things are. The next surprise though, was when they went to the world of antimatter, and I've used this analogy of replacing negative images and positive images to go from matter to antimatter, and in the world of antimatter, you find that this one is the one that happens, whereas that one is the one that doesn't happen. So you now can see what happens. In the world that we live in, when you produce neutrinos and electrons, it's always spinning like a left-handed corkscrew. If you go to the world of antimatter, then they go the other way. It's as if... If you go behind the mirror, you have to go from matter to antimatter as well. This is one of the great mysteries that we're trying to understand. I'm actually going to talk about that probably more in May. So I'll say nothing more about it now other than to leave it as an example of something that is sort of bizarre. But to make you feel a little bit more comfortable, I will show you. I showed it at the last lecture, and I'm going to explain the reasons for this next time. But there's this picture by Escher, which is a nice illustration of what I've just shown you. That you've got this nice symmetry of white horsemen going to the right and black horsemen going to the left. That's like say neutrinos going to the left say. And If I look in the mirror I've now got neutrinos going to the right, but if I now go to the world of antimatter replacing white by black and black by white, in fact I'm back to where I started. So this image of Escher is a little allegory for the world of the neutrino, so I'll show you here again so that we're used to it. So, this is like the original Escher drawing, that's its mirror image and then I go from mirror image to uh, anti and I'm sort of back spinning the same way as before. So neutrinos uh, seem to be able to tell the difference between the real world and the mirror world and precisely why and what this means is one of the great questions which At the moment, we're still trying to find the answer to, and I'll tell you what we do know about it in another time. Now, the next surprise was that in the 1950s, however, they discovered there are three types of neutrino. You can call them blue, green, and red, if you like, but their actual names that we call them are these. The, The neutrino that was discovered was discovered, produced in conventional beta decay where an electron had been made, and then it came shooting out of the reactor, and far, far away, revealed itself by creating um, an electron. It was discovered that sometimes, however, when you had these things producing neutrinos, a heavy version of the electron called a muon was formed. And if that was the way the neutrino was born, when it later bumped into something, it revealed itself by making a muon, always. And about 30 years ago, we discovered an even heavier version of the electron called the tau, and there are some particles that will produce taus and neutrinos and what we had expected is that these neutrinos would eventually reveal themselves by bumping into something and producing taus. It was only last year that this was finally seen at Fermilab in, in the States. And so the message is that there are apparently three distinct types of neutrinos that either somehow remember that they are born from electrons and reveal themselves by making electrons. We call this the electron type. Or that they're born with muons and reveal themselves with muons. We call it the muon type and the tau type. What exactly this little label is, i mean, these things as as near to nothing as you can imagine, seem to remember where they came from and carry it along with them, we don't know. The fact that there are three distinct types, we do know. But what it is that distinguishes them, we don't know. Unless perhaps the clues from last week might begin to tell us. The fact that there are three distinct types is actually very interesting because it touches on things like the way the universe was born, the big bang, the universe started expanding, it expanded and it cooled and made the elements that we're now made of. Now the speed that it expanded depends upon many things, but if you draw sort of an analogy with a gas inside a, inside a cylinder, all the molecules and the gas bumping around and the top of the cylinder then gets forced up from the gas will cool, being a little model for the universe like here's the particles in the original hot universe the universe expanding and cooling. The rate at which this happens depends in particular on the number of varieties of neutrino that there are and to get the sums right and to understand things like the fact that three minutes after the Big Bang the way that the elements were being cooked was such that Three quarters of what the universe is now made of is protons and about 25% helium. To get those numbers right, it turned out that everything would be fine if indeed there were three varieties of neutrino. So things at least somehow were balancing together. And experiments at CERN uh, a few years ago also found other ways of showing there were three types of neutrino. So let's now go back then to neutrinos from the Sun, because I want to tell you about the surprises. Yes indeed, everything's fine. The Neutrino exists, there are three distinct types of it, we don't know why, but that's how it is. And then you go and do these measurements of the Sun, where I said that there are two time with 38 zeros neutrinos being emitted, and they eventually arrive here. But the number that arrive here is only about one-third of what were expected. And this was what I was saying at the start, is it a problem for the Sun? or a problem for the neutrinos. Well, the fact that there are three different types of neutrino and about one third of what you're expecting were arriving and people realized that the experiments that were detecting the things from the the Sun only detected them of the, what I call, the blue type. So, the Sun is emitting always electron-type neutrinos. The detectors here on Earth were detecting electron-type neutrinos. But if along the way, these neutrinos could actually forget where they came from and change their identity in some way, like I start off as an electron-type neutrino and somewhere along the way to the earth I sort of change myself into a muon-type neutrino or a tau-type neutrino at a complete random, then as these things sort of lose their identity, you've only got a one-third chance of still being an electron neutrino when you get here. And that might be, we thought, the reason why we're only detecting one-third as many as we expected. And I think that that is actually probably the right answer. And to illustrate why, I'll just show you now a couple of pictures of uh, how we detect the things and what it's got to do with neutrinos having mass. So first of all, um, how do you detect these neutrinos? Well, You do it by going to this, uh, turning this off. Now, is this supposed to be on, or I just have to press the spacebar to turn it on? Ah. Okay, great. And I go back. Right, so um, in Canada, well, the, the way that we go and detect neutrinos from the sun is we go underground. The reason being that to detect neutrinos at all is extremely difficult. And there are many things producing uh, stuff that will completely uh, swamp your experiment. So you go deep underground to cut out all the cosmic rays and all the other stuff that's arriving here. So the only things that have got a chance of coming through hundreds of meters of rock and still being there are neutrinos. And one particular experiment that is just started, this is not the one I'm going to be telling you about the news from, I'll tell you about this experiment next year. It is at Sudbury in Canada, near Ontario. It's called SNOW for the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. And this is just to show you an idea of the scale of things. Uh, That is a person here. And what this is, it's a huge ball of of pure heavy water. The reasons why it's heavy water is for another time. Um, But surrounding this ball here, these things here are little um, photo photo tubes. If, If you like, they're like light bulbs in reverse. You put electricity in the back of a light bulb and you get light out. These things work the way around. If something, if light flashes into them, they send an electric current out to a, a, a computer, which will record the fact. And neutrinos could come shooting through the earth from the sun, and go burrowing into this thing, and uh, this is what a neutrino would see from the inside. It would see this huge sphere of all these phototubes. Now, what are they doing there? Well, they are there to reveal the neutrino. Let me show you what the sort of picture would look like and then tell you why. So, you get this nice uh, sort of circle here. This is showing that a whole set of these phototubes have suddenly fired. That light has gone through this circle of phototubes at the same moment. And that tells you that something has happened and why and what. Well, I'll show you. It's an analogy with sound. We can leave that there for the minute, and I'll just turn this on. So this at first sight appears to be something different, but it's not. You're used to the idea that when an ambulance comes shooting towards you, you hear a sort of Doppler shift. Well, a similar thing happens with light, but let me just show you first of all. So, suppose that this is sound, and I've got um, an object that is emitting sound, and the waves move out into space. So, uh, originally, It was here, and the waves propagate out, and three seconds later, there's a big circle of these waves, which is this outer ring here. Now, let's move on one second. By that time, the object has moved a little bit to the right, and it's emitting waves out into space from there, such such that two seconds later, they will be reached here. And then let's move on one further second, so the object is there, and one second later its waves will reach there. So, at this moment, there's these waves coming through space. Now, if you're here in front of the waves, they hit you quite quickly. Whereas if you're here behind them, they reach you rather more spaced out. And that is why in front of these waves, the wavelength has been crammed up. So, if this was emitting the, the note C on the piano, from the front, it'd be shifted up a bit to D, whereas from behind it would have been stretched out down to B-flat. So that's how sound waves get crammed up coming towards you and stretched out going away from you, and the pitch changes. Same thing happens with light. If you look at the light from distant galaxies, you find that they seem to be invariably stretched out to the red compared to what we're used to on Earth, because those galaxies are moving away from us. Okay. What about sonic booms? Let's do the same thing, but this time let's have the object moving faster than the speed of sound. So, if that's where it was three seconds ago, and that's where the circle's got to in three seconds. But it's moving so fast that two seconds ago it's got to there, and its circle now is here, and one second ago there it would have only got to here. You see that now these things do not sort of reach you. got crammed so far up, that in fact, if you're out here, nothing is reaching you. Until this point arrives, and at this moment, all the waves arrive in one go. You hear this bang, and then the plane's gone past, and you're out the back here, and you hear, if you ever hear, next time you hear a sonic boom, what happens is you hear uh, you hear this sort of low hum. The low hum is because this has gone past, and you're listening to the trailing waves coming out. The same thing happens with light. Now, nothing can travel faster than light in a vacuum. That's the upper speed limit of everything. But in a material, it is, light slows down. Like water, for example. Light travels slower in water than in free space. So it's possible that in water, you could have an electron that's actually travelling faster through the water than the light is allowed to travel in the water. So you've got a, just like the supersonic plane, you've got a superluminal electron. And that will make a shock wave in light. It's called Cherenkov radiation after the scientists who first realized this. And the analog of the sonic boom is this cone of light that suddenly shoots out. And so if the electron was moving, let's say, at Mach 2, uh, Somewhat faster than the speed of light, the cone has a relatively narrow angle. If it's moving really fast, the cone has got a wider angle. So what's this got to do with neutrinos? Well, this. Suppose the neutrino has come in to the detector and hit a proton in the detector and revealed itself by turning into an electron. The electron goes shooting through the water in that detector faster than light can travel through the detector and it makes this Cherenkov cone of radiation, which then, I can't reach up yet, and that's when that cone gets to the edge of the detector and hits those photo tubes and they detect it. So the moment the scientists see this ring flashing off, they say, aha, a Cherenkov cone. And from the size of that cone, if it's a big one or a small one, they can tell whether it was a big one or a small one, they can work back as to exactly what the energy, or the speed, of that electron was, and then work back further as to what the actual energy of the neutrino that set the whole thing going was. What happens most of the time, they discover they're false triggers. But occasionally, all the books balance, and they're able to detect neutrinos and measure them. Now, the thing that is interesting about this particular SNOW experiment is that whereas up to now, experiments have only detected the electron neutrino type and discovered that there's only one-third as many as you expect. The SNOW experiment will also be able to detect the muon neutrino type. So for the first time, we'll be able to look at the sun to see if it's shining in electron neutrinos and the green ones, the muon ones. Because the sun doesn't produce any muon ones. So if we suddenly find there are as many muon neutrinos arriving as the electron neutrinos, then we will know that this is indeed what's happening. Well, You might say, well, interesting, but who cares? Well, it's this, because the only way that these neutrinos can change their identity is if they have a mass. And what I've got here is a little model to illustrate something. And uh, I can't explain quantum mechanics to you here, but I can show you something like it. The world of particles and quantum is that everything goes like waves which means that things oscillate back and forth. So this is a model of the mathematics of, there is a neutrino, say, of the electron type. And this represents a neutrino of the other type, which is sitting still. So as you cross space, the thing just oscillates back and forwards forever. But what if neutrinos have a mass? It turns out then that the mathematics is exactly what happens if I put an elastic band, just around these things, let's see, now if Bryson had made this for me it would work, right, but this is a theorist trying, so I will now set this one here oscillating, and watch what happens to the other one, initially it will stay at rest, but gradually it will pick up the motion itself, let's see what happens, this one's oscillation will get transferred to the other one, which will then overtake it, and the other one is doing most of the oscillating and then they end up sharing it equally between them. And so now, I'll hold it up again so probably we can, if somebody here is brave enough to stand up and hold this up in the air while I wobble it, right, okay, I will, it probably won't work now, maybe that's a good idea, thank you. I set, I set this one oscillating and gradually its motion gets picked up by the other one and they end up both of them. It goes from one to, the, if, I, if I had a beautifully designed elastic band, you would actually see all the motion start in this one. It would then be transferred to the other one and then eventually they would transfer it and share it. So let's just see if I can do it one more time. So that's the thing swinging, gradually being picked up by the other one. This one. On the right has just slowed, it's now beginning to speed up again. Time they go. They're now doing it in unison. So this is saying I started off with just the right one swinging, and now they're both doing it 50-50. And what that little model is sort of representing is, when I started one of them swinging, that was saying, out there in the sun, one of them was produced. And it was oscillating its way through space. But because, if they had a mass, it gradually started talking to the other one through the elastic band, which picked up the motion, until eventually they were both doing it. And by the time they got here, both of them were there, so there was only one half of the amount in the first one, that you started with, or with three neutrinos, only one-third the amount. And that might be the reason why only one-third as many are arriving. Now you might think that's contrived, but it turns out that a few years ago another example was seen. Now at this moment, there's cosmic rays hitting the atmosphere above our head. And these cosmic rays produce particles. We can sort of imagine a movie. A shower comes down and these in turn make short-lived particles called pies, which decay, producing muons and muon-type neutrinos. Which the muon then decays to produce an electron-type neutrino and another muon-type neutrino. So the end result of this is that there are two muon-type neutrinos for one electron-type neutrino as a result of cosmic radiation. There's not very much of this actually compared to the neutrinos from the Sun. It's much less than you were getting from the ground. I didn't even include it in my first list of where neutrinos are coming from. But there should be two of these, every one of those. You go to this underground detector that I showed you a minute or two ago, and they're finding it's roughly one-to-one that arrive. So this again could be that this time it's the muon neutrinos that are disappearing and oscillating into the other ones. In the case of the Sun, it was the electron-type neutrinos that disappeared. This time, we think it's the muon-type neutrinos that disappeared. But you can't be sure. The, uh, what you want to do is to have a carefully regulated sort of neutrinos from an accelerator and then let them pass right through the earth to a detector far, far away. And that is what the current idea is. I will show you, I apologize, I will show you one equation. This is just so that anybody who's interested can at least see. I just want to hide all the... right. What this says is that the speed with which this neutrino oscillates into the other one and back and forth is determined by, essentially, how long. I mean, the longer these swing, the more the motion gets transferred. So similarly here, it turns out that it's like a sine wave oscillating backwards and forwards, and the the rate at which it oscillates depends upon the difference in the masses. So already, these neutrinos have to have a mass for any of this to happen. If neutrinos had no mass at all, there's no elastic band here. And if you produce this type, it stays that type forever. If you produce that type, it stays that type forever. It's only if they've got a mass that the back and forth happens. So the back and forth depends upon how big that difference in mass is, and it also depends upon how long you let it oscillate, which is essentially how far away from the source and what the energy of it in the denominator was. Now in the case of neutrinos from the sun, the neutrinos from the sun have got energies of about... Only a million EV. that's one thousandth of this. And we also know these mass differences are very, very small. So from the sun, that ratio is about one. And so because we are so far away in kilometers from the sun, it means that you've lost all memory. Everything has just been completely homogenized. What you would want to do is to catch the oscillations at this sort of point, where it's just going from here and the other one's beginning to pick it up. To do that, you need to have beams from an accelerator, which you've got hundreds of GeV, so this is very big down the bottom here, and then have a large distance of some hundreds of kilometers to compensate. And so that is now what is happening. In Geneva, they are building a, a neutrino beam which is being pointed towards the Grand Sasso laboratory under the mountains near Rome, about 500 kilometers away. And in the states at Fermilab, likewise, they have their neutrino beam from the Fermilab accelerator near Chicago pointed towards um, an underground detector in Minnesota. And in Japan, they have already started doing this. Um, there's a, their accelerator is about 200 kilometers from Tokyo, and they have an underground detector at the Kamioka mine, and let me just show you the images of this because this is, they sort of very elegant and so then I'll tell you what it is about them. So oh this is a cosmic rays, okay. Um, this is the, the Kamioka detector, is a huge tank of water it's 50 meters deep and 40 meters across and you're looking down into it from the top here you've got vertigo and all these little white specks around the side are photomultiplier tube. It's the same idea as we saw at Snow, instead of it being a cylinder at Snow, it's a huge cylindrical tank in this case, and you're looking right down into it. And then, whereas Snow was detecting occasional neutrinos from cosmic rays from outer space, this is detecting neutrinos from the Accelerator Laboratory 200 kilometers away. And this is typically, again, that beautiful circle of Cherenkov radiation the key that shows that something's happened, you can still see the other little photo tubes in there. So this experiment has been running now for a few years and they made a very early announcement um, and I printed this off some years ago from an old website, you don't need to read it, it was just a headline. Evidence for massive neutrinos in June 1998, media advisory from this experiment and uh, you might say, why am I telling you this then today? Well the thing is, always read on because the next page on this media advisory was Super Cameo Candy, operation jeopardized by budget cuts. Now immediately <laughs> we knew which was the real story. Um, you will find, surprise surprise, that there is often a correlation between results that may or may not be going to be proven one day and the, the budget coming around, or something like that, and it was quite clear that, that was really what the message was, was here. But what I can now tell you is that those experiments have now uh, report they've been running for a couple of years, um, and they have now completely analyzed the first 100 days of their data. And the bottom line of it is this, that the accelerator is producing neutrinos of the muon type, the green type of neutrinos and this experiment is detecting that particular type of neutrino, the details of it are not, not relevant here but this is the bottom line of what they have found um, I mean the, the, the accelerator 250 kilometers away is producing a mil- a billion of these neutrinos every second in their beam and 250 kilometers away the detector is sort of detecting these things now you might say first of all because these neutrinos come out in bursts how do they know the burst coming from the accelerator correlates with something happening in their detector. Answer, they use the global positioning GPS system that they can tell exactly which burst there corresponds to which burst here. I mean, this is amazing how all these things are happening. And of those 100 billion, after 250 kilometers, this beam, of course, is spread out through the Earth, so only a very small part comes to that huge tank of water. But even so, they know from other tests and everything else that have been done that they would expect to find between about 35 and 42, is, is that accurate? That they expect that in 100 days they should have detected 38 plus or minus 3 neutrinos. And in fact, they have seen 28. Now that is not a dramatic effect at this stage, it's only what we call two and a half standard deviations but that's only a hundred days, and this experiment will run for as long as that accelerator laboratory runs. And I would think that uh, because we've had these indirect hints of the shortfall of the blue electron neutrinos from the sun, the anomalies in the cosmic rays where instead of twice as many green mu neutrinos as the others, we're only getting one to one, and these other vague hints, this I think is the first beginning of a quantitative measurement that suggests that indeed neutrinos are oscillating from one to the other as they travel through space. And that would mean that there is a mass, or in fact a difference in masses. What these masses actually are, we don't yet know, but the fact that they have different masses is uh, the implication, and that means that at least one of them has got a mass. And so finally, that is interesting because even if neutrinos, because neutrinos have got a small mass, nonetheless they are the most common particle in the universe. There are more neutrinos around than anything else. So if a neutrino weighed only one billionth as much as a proton, there are a billion times as many of them. So it would mean that the mass of the universe, there'd be as much mass in neutrinos as there is in the rest of the stuff. And so this could have an impact upon the future expansion of the universe. You know, when you sort of weigh the amount of hydrogen out there and things, we think, well, the universe will expand forever. But if the neutrinos are adding to it, they could tip the balance the other way so that the universe eventually slows down and then collapses in a big crunch. But again, don't worry about that. That will not be for another couple of hours. <laughs> so uh, that is where we are. As I said, quite by chance, the first hints that indeed... Neutrinos do have a mass, I think, are now really appearing. And um, in, the, in the right of, I didn't uh, get the URL, but if any of you have access to the web, um, this uh, is a, a site that's run from here in the UK. Each week, they have, at this spot, a new picture of the week with a story about it. Um, so this is you know, High Energy Physics Web, Rutherford Lab, AC UK. Particle Physics UK is the thing. And in there, um, you'll see a front page and one of the things will be Picture of the Week. Click on that. You'll see the picture for this week, except there isn't one, because the woman who runs it is actually in Australia for three weeks at the conference. But you will see the archive. Well, Actually, there is a picture, but it's last week's picture. We'll stay there for three weeks. But you will see the archive list, and it's now two and a half years old, so there's over 100 images. And you can click through there, and you will fi- just find, um, you'll find Super Cameo Candy. Click on that. That image that I showed you will come up, and there will also be a 200-word storyline on it. And some of the words in there will be highlighted, so you can click on those and and go and find other things. Um, So, once you've found that site, you won't need to come to any of these talks ever again. Thank you. That's for today. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.